Welcome to the DNVGL Talks Energy podcast series. Electrification, rise of renewables and new technologies supported by more data and IT systems are transforming the power system. Join us each week as we discuss these changes with guests from around the industry. Welcome to another episode of DNVGL Talks Energy. My guest today is Belinda Kincaid, who will talk about the Brooklyn microgrid. Good morning, Belinda. Good morning. Belinda, um, we want to talk about a very exciting project uh, you are doing uh, in Brooklyn, in New York uh, at the moment. But uh, before we get there, uh, it would be really great if you could introduce yourself as well as the company you work for, uh, which is the company having that project in Brooklyn. Sure. Uh, so I'm the Australian director of LO3 Energy. So far, our presence in Australia is quite small. It's just me. We're a startup that's based in Brooklyn. We have offices in Brooklyn and Portland probably about 25 people worldwide at the moment. So LO3 Energy um, is a an energy technology company. So we have a blockchain-enabled platform that allows peer-to-peer -peer energy trading. So where people that have solar generation, for example, on their roofs could sell their excess power to a neighbor rather than back to the retailer um, and also enables local energy marketplaces. So it's really about changing the way that consumers can engage with energy. Right. That sounds that sounds good already. And tell us a bit, what did you do with that technology in Brooklyn? What is this Brooklyn microgrid? So our flagship demonstration project is the Brooklyn microgrid. It's uh, a community microgrid. The uh, Brooklyn microgrid is actually 50% owned by the local community and 50% owned by LO3 Energy. Uh, it is both a virtual microgrid and a physical microgrid, which means that part of the project allows, uh, it covers a 10-block radius in, in Brooklyn that would be able to island, which means disconnect from the greater grid in a time of either extreme weather or some other catastrophe. So some of the motivation for citing this project, which is a pilot, so it tests our technology, Some of the motivation for citing the, the project in Brooklyn was the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. So the the physical microgrid covers um, Park Slope, which is a very wealthy neighborhood in Brooklyn. It's just across the water from Wall Street. So you have a lot of people with very nice brownstones. And then just down the road uh, is the Gowanus, which is still quite a lot of uh, light industrial, so factories, um, and a lot of social housing as well. So when Hurricane Sandy came through, some of those uh, social housing apartment towers were without power for more than 10 days. And that meant people were actually trapped in their apartments because there were no lifts and right. there was no lights in the hallways and things like that. So the government was quite keen to look at how they might use something like our technology to build resiliency within the local community. So we have, um, Brooklyn has a reasonably high penetration of distributed solar. Uh, nothing compared to what it is in Australia and some other countries, but it's pretty good. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of quite active people keen on sustainability um, and there were assets already in the community. Um, in the time of a catastrophe or natural disaster, the, the physical microgrid disconnects from the wider grid and the generation assets within the microgrid will direct their energy towards critical infrastructure. So for Brooklyn, it's a high school that would act as an evacuation center and some medical facilities. Uh, 
the virtual microgrid part is um, there's a lot of interest in the project and people that weren't necessarily on this 10 block radius that would island were also interested in the prospect of being able to buy and sell electricity from their neighbours. Uh, so we have virtual participants. It all uses the existing grid infrastructure, so the existing poles and wires, and people opt to join the Brooklyn microgrid. The Brooklyn microgrid becomes essentially their, I guess, electricity retailer. Uh, they would use an app. So we have an app that allows people to select where they want their energy to come from. So fuel source preferences, whatever that might be. So it's really about reflecting consumers' individual preferences. Most of them really like local green energy. Um, so that's that's what's very in demand. Uh, but if you were worried about cost, you can select you know traditional brown energy or for some reason, you know, wind energy kills birds and so you really don't like wind energy you can select to not have wind energy so they can set fuel source preferences uh, they set price caps as well and those uh, that information sort of acts as a as a bid into a local marketplace and on this local marketplace uh, people are selling their excess solar generation or any other sort of uh, distributed generation uh, discharge from a battery or also their demand response capability. So demand response is, we term it negawatts, so the ability of, of being able to turn something off. If you have network congestion, that has the same effect mm. as generating more. So people are also able to set price points of when um, they would turn things off. So maybe turn their air conditioning off or their lights or what have you. At the moment we have hardware, so it's a smart meter uh, that is both a smart meter and a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, the the marketplace is enabled using blockchain, which I'll talk about in a little bit, but the computer aspect means these meters are hosts of the blockchain. So it's it, it, it's I guess it's like a super smart meter. It does everything a smart meter does, but it has a bit of extra computational grunt. Those meters are able to bind with smart devices in the in the home. Um, so this whole internet of things, you can have the meter knowing the load of your smart fridge or you know, your electric vehicle battery or your air conditioner. And it knows through the app, you set price points, which become bids into this demand response market. So um, the meter knows or can offer into the marketplace your capacity to turn things down or turn things off as well. Right. So uh, I think you hinted towards that already, but there's a lot of transactions going on. So how are these transactions managed and how do you pay for what you get? So we use a technology blockchain. So there are many, many different types of blockchain. Uh, The most famous type of blockchain is probably Bitcoin, which is a financial uh, blockchain or a cryptocurrency. So we're not, we don't use a cryptocurrency per se. We have a specific energy blockchain so our blockchain is modeled uh, it's designed to model the the physics of an electricity grid and the transactions that we undertake are not necessarily in currencies but in terms of kilowatt hours or megawatts or kvar or so it's it's very much about the energy um, it's an energy transaction which you can then plug into a billing system whatever that may be and you can settle, but you don't necessarily use a cryptocurrency. Uh, so the founders of the company, 
Lawrence Orsini and Bill Collins. Um, Lawrence had done quite a lot of work in the transactive energy space, which is, a, I guess, a philosophy that generation, consumption, storage and transportation should all um, sort of evolve around economic or price signals. So you use price as a, as a proxy for control of all these assets. And one of the issues has always been scalability. So if you imagine the grid edge becomes all of these, uh, you know, the internet of things, all of these devices, all of these distributed generation sources that are able to participate in a marketplace. Um, for them to really participate, you need the transaction costs and also the speed and reliability of those transactions to be very fast and able to cope with you know massive volumes of, of mm. data, massive volumes of tiny transactions. So when blockchain started to become a thing, um, they had their little light bulb moment of this could be the way, this is how we do it. Uh, I mean, there are obviously other ways to enable demand response capabilities and you know have marketplaces, but um, our, our vision of the future, I guess, is that the grid evolves to become a series of interconnected microgrids. So um, you have a lot of generation that's distributed amongst the communities that are consuming it, um, and they're still interconnected so they can provide support for additional communities or call for support from additional communities. But as much as possible, they're balancing their demand and supply. They're you know, keeping the grid stable. And that does mean potentially billions and billions of tiny transactions. And if you take that across, you know, so we have you know Brooklyn and then you take it across New York, you take it across the US, you take it across the world, that's... Mm. A, you know, a big challenge and we think blockchain has the potential to overcome those issues of dealing with that the sheer volume of little transactions that are necessary. Right. That sounds like a lot of technology required. Uh, did you do this all yourself or are there any technology partners helping in that project? We are working with Siemens. So in the Brooklyn microgrid, they have a microgrid management system um, which does a lot of the grid stability um, services and we're actually looking at integrating the algorithms from the microgrid management system into our blockchain so essentially testing whether or not they can first communicate to one another so that the microgrid management system understands the blockchain and then being able to put those algorithms actually into the blockchain so Uh, it's happening without the need for installing a microgrid management system. So that's we haven't done it yet in Brooklyn, but it's something that we're working with Siemens on trying to do. I see. I see. Okay. <clears throat> so how is um, the acceptance of the community? How do they like this? Uh, they love it. And it's really interesting, actually, because in Brooklyn, they're very proud to be from Brooklyn and they're very big on you know Brooklyn-made things. Mm -hmm. So whether that's artisanal you know, bread or locally brewed beer or you know, coffee, whatever it is. So the Brooklyn Electrons have a little bit of uh, social cachet and people are actually willing to pay more for those locally generated green electrons, um, which is not necessarily what we're observing or hearing in other communities, but They are actually, they want them and there's not enough to go around and they're willing to pay more for those local electrons. 
So the drivers in Brooklyn, a lot of it is to do with keeping money within the local community. They want, um, so rather than their energy dollars going to, you know, a utility company that's headquartered in Texas, their energy spend stays within the local community, supports local people and local jobs. Um, I think the first transactions that were done um, at the, I think it was like $4, that was, you know, a transaction between a neighbour buying electricity and one selling. And he's, he's decided he would take his grandson down to the ice cream shop to buy an ice cream with his $4 which, you know, is a really nice symbol of keeping money within the local community. Mm-hmm. Um, there, was, there was one of the, one of the ladies who was very uh, an early adopter or a participator. She was very keen on green power and she was horrified to learn that actually, um, even though she had, you know, had been purchasing 100% green power for a long time, that didn't actually mean that she was getting green electrons. And she's, oh, my God, I've been using more electricity because I thought I was doing the right thing. Uh, but but you're, you're telling me that <laughs> actually the electricity I'm consuming is coming from that, you know, that coal-fired plant across the, the river. So for her, it was a little bit, well, you know, I, I don't want to do that. I want, I want green power, but I want locally generated green power. Um, so I have those lo- very localised environmental benefits as well. Um, and it's so one of the other aspects of the project is, um, you know, the, the community has a lot of uh, differences in you know, socioeconomic status. And it's also about enabling people that don't necessarily have, you know, don't own a house or maybe don't have a suitable roof or a suitable site for putting in their own distributed generation or don't have the upfront capital that's involved um, or, you, you know, live in social housing or you're renting being able to give those people an opportunity to also participate in in terms of owning a community asset. So there is an option uh, in the app where people can, uh, you can see where are the solar panels or other distributed resources located already within the community and is there a site that you think would be suitable for a community-owned asset, so on you know, a roof of a school or, or somewhere else. And then it gives people the option to put a little bit of money, like a crowdfunding, um, you know, $50 or $250 into a community-owned asset. So even if they can't afford a system themselves, they still get that ownership or part ownership of a community asset. And the fact that people are willing to pay more for the local electrons, that's a really strong signal, price signal, that there needs to be more investment in that type of asset within the community. Okay, so when I invest into a community asset, do I get power for cheaper or do I get a discount? What is my benefit there? Uh, it depends how it, you have options, but it could be that you get a return. We're still trying to work that out with the um, financial services uh, in New York, but it could be that you get some of the electricity for free or that you earn a return on the you know the, your portion of electricity that was sold within the local oh, okay. marketplace. Yeah. So that sounds really incredible exciting uh, but what I also hear is that you are on the verge of cutting intermediaries out you are still using the local distribution network um, so what about regulatory barriers and scalability of that project it's a good question and yes the regulatory barriers are significant I would say so I think we have an idea and I would say Many utilities see the future 
is moving towards a lot of distributed generation and it's important to have that distributed generation integrated in some way. So we kind of know what the the end point is, but there's many different paths to get there. And for regulators, it's um, you know, it's a big it's a big change. So we've we're moving from very centralized generation and long transmission distribution networks to a very bi-directional grid where you have many, many uh, sources of generation at the grid edge able to put electricity back into the system. And it's not what it's been designed to do. And I think there's a lot of uh, questions for regulators about what the impacts are, you know, how does it how does it fit within the existing regulation? Um, and it, it also involves changes to tariffs potentially. So for example, you know, network companies in a lot of countries, they earn guaranteed returns based on the capital that they that they spent and you know the the case in Australia for example a guaranteed return of whatever it was 7 or 8% based on how much copper went in or up mm. and that has changed now um, and a lot of electricity bills in Australia 50% is network charges and people get kind of annoyed about that uh, especially because once that infrastructure went in uh, that's when energy demand started to actually taper off so it's overbuilt the grid in some areas um, but of course for a lot of those players they're incumbent and you know people need electricity electricity is really a it's not a, a, a desire it's a need it's a it's a necessary service so regulators need to be sure that people will still be able to turn on their lights and still be able to access, you know, power. Um, so that for a lot of the places where we're, we're looking at trialling our technology, um, we're working with regulators to sort of carve out a little bit of space or what's called a regulatory sandbox where we can experiment, um, work with real people, real businesses, and uh, they will give us, you know, a dispensation from some of the regulations and they want to engage and want to watch what happens and see how do people use it what are, what are the you know what are the impacts what are the potential unintended consequences and if you know if there are winners and losers from this move uh, who wins and who loses if it's in theory consumers should be able to get cheaper electricity more reliable electricity which is great uh, but if they don't, that's not great for a regulator. Uh, if it's retailers and you know distribution companies who are losing some of their profit margins, well, you know, is that politically acceptable? It's probably more acceptable than uh, consumers losing out. So there's there's still a long way to go, and there's a lot of that's. I mean, that's primarily what we're doing at the moment is testing something like the Brooklyn microgrid in different regulatory regimes but also different communities and cultural settings to to really you can never predict how people are going to engage with it and they're very uh yeah they're not necessarily economically rational as well so it's very interesting for regulators to have hard data on you know we installed it we put it in this community and this is actually what happened which speaks volumes compared to this is what we modeled uh, having hard data, I think, is what will make regulators more comfortable. Uh, and then it also helps us so we can sort of tweak how we engage with communities or how the platform works. 
Very interesting. Unfortunately, we are running a little bit out of time for this episode, uh, but I have one last question for you. This is the special Singapore International Energy Week edition. So what was your main takeaway from Singapore's International Energy Week in 2017? Uh, just how quickly uh, renewables are growing in Asia um, and that there's a lot of, I, I would say there's a lot of potential. It's not necessarily... Um, under the pressures that some of the developed uh, countries are, you know, like Germany and the US and Australia with the, the penetration rate of distributed generation. But it's definitely coming. And I'm amazed. There's a lot of people very interested in blockchain as well. So there's a lot of opportunity in Asia, I think. So watch this space. Belinda, thank you very much for these very valuable insights. And thank you very much also to the listeners for joining us here again. That was Belinda Kincaid, director of LO3 Energy, talking about the Brooklyn microgrid. Unfortunately, this episode also brings us to the end of Series 3 of DNVGL Talks Energy. I hope to talk to you soon again. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to this DNVGL Talks Energy podcast. To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnvgl.com slash talksenergy.